You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Man, you may be seated. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gather this morning in your name. Lord, it's our hope and prayer that what you've heard from our services thus far today have been pleasing to your ears. And Father, I pray as we continue to worship you through the preaching and teaching of your word. And Father, that you would open our eyes and hearts to the truth. Um, and that we would see how these ancient stories can shape our lives today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Hope you guys are well. If you have your Bible or device, you can go ahead and open that to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, and we're going to pick up in verse 18 through our journey in Acts. This is where we find ourselves this morning. Acts chapter 18, verse 18, all the way through Acts chapter 19, verse 20. So Acts 18, 18 through chapter 19, verse 20. If you remember last week, we were still with the Apostle Paul in Corinth, where he stayed for one and one half years um, this morning. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a, a, a road map, no pun intended. You'll know what I mean here in a second. Um, there's some confusion, or can be some confusion, toward the end of Acts chapter 18 because Paul, he leaves Corinth. His second missionary journey comes to an end. Um, he stops in Centre. He goes on down to Jerusalem. He goes back to Antioch. He goes back through Galatia. And then he comes back to Ephesus. So he makes a brief stay in Ephesus. And it, it's confusing if you just read it. So what I'd like for us to do, as we kind of work our way through the last part of 18 and the first part of 19, um, there are going to be some maps behind me that will be... Uh, you know, congruent with the slides that you know with the information that's on them and so once we do that and we'll get ourselves into uh, chapter 19 I'll slow down a little bit and we'll talk through it a section at a time and then Lord willing we'll close our time with some application to see how this passage can shape our lives and so if you look down in Acts chapter 18 beginning in verse 18 it says after this Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. In verse 19 he came, and they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now I'm going to pause and show you the first slide just to make sure all of our, um, as my granddad used to say, all our towards are right. All right. And so um, he, he's in Corinth. And so for you looking at the stage, it's going to be on your left. So that, where that red line ends in the far northern part, that's Corinth. He drops down to Centre. He brings Priscilla and Aquila. He, he leaves them. And in Centre, he stops for a haircut. Okay? I, I know you, you probably want more about like what was this vow, what was going on. We just don't know exactly what this is about other than in their culture and in the context of the Jewish community. Often, um, them letting their hair grow out would be something that went as long of a duration of a vow that they would have made with someone else. And so I think the idea was that if I made a vow with you, um, then I'd say, hey, I'm not cutting my hair until this vow is fulfilled. And so it was just, I guess, served as like a tangible reminder of the promise that you've made to that person. And once it's fulfilled, then you can cut your hair. I don't know if that's what he did, but it does say that he went in Centre and got his hair cut because he was under a vow. And then after that, he goes across the sea and sails to Ephesus. Now, his first stay in Ephesus is brief. Think of it as him sort of scoping the city out in order to prepare for 
his, his more, uh, you know, his longer stay as he starts his third missionary journey, which we'll get to in a second. But Paul continued once he got in Ephesus, even though it was a brief time, to preach in the synagogues. And so look down in verse 20. Um, it says, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Verse 21, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus, verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. I want to show you the second map. It's, it's, it's Paul leaving Ephesus. And so, again, it's going to be on that far northern end up here. If you're looking at the stage left, he drops down and he sails all the way back to Caesarea, which is where Jerusalem is. And, and, and so the hub Christian church is in Jerusalem. And so Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem. Some think it was possibly to celebrate the Feast of Passover. We just don't know for sure. But he goes back and, and he visits the church there. And then I, I guess some, you know, kind of, you know, some southern lingo comes out because it says, hey, we're going down to Antioch. Well, the thing is, Antioch is up, okay? And so Antioch is, is north, and so he makes his way after he spends some time in Jerusalem visiting the church, and he goes back north through Syria and goes back to Antioch. If you remember, if you've been with us through this journey in Acts, Antioch is where the missionary journeys began. That was the sending church. That was the hub church that Paul and Barnabas were sent out of. Okay, verses 22, I'm sorry, 23. 20, yeah, middle part of 22 and 23. It says, and he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. Well, after he's been in Antioch, verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. All right, so third, third map here, okay? There it is. All right, so Paul starts now his third missionary journey. His second missionary journey ended when he arrived in Jerusalem on the last map, okay? And so now, if you're looking, at, you see where Antioch is. Now, if you're going back northwest, he makes his way back through Galatia. So his third missionary journey, it, it really starts off as a discipleship strategy. He's going back through these places to where he planted churches, and he's strengthening the disciples, he's encouraging them, and he's making his way back to um, a longer stay in Ephesus. Now in verse 24, verses 24 through 28, we meet a new fella. And this guy's name is Apollos. According to verse 24, he was a native of Alexandria. And, and he came to Ephesus. Scripture tells us that he was an eloquent man. He was competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, verse 25. And he was, be, he was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus but here's the caveat, that though he knew only the baptism of John. So, so watch how this plays out in verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I absolutely love what's going down in this section of Acts 18. Because here's what we know about Apollos. Apollos was a very gifted man. He was brilliant, he was educated, he was trained, but he even had the rare qualities to go along with that, and that he was very articulate, people loved him. He's what you would call a, just a dynamic leader. And, and so he's being used in powerful ways, and so he, he goes to preach, but remember Priscilla and Aquila from last week, these are tent makers. These are just some, this is a blue-collar couple, and they're going to listen, and they're probably thinking, man, this dude, like, he can preach. 
He can teach. He's got wonderful oracle skills. He has such a gift. But what they hear coming from his mouth, to say it bluntly, is just not the gospel. He understands some things about Jesus. He's, he's been baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist, which of course was not an unchristian baptism. It wasn't, I mean, there was nothing wrong with that. This is going to show itself again in the first part of chapter 19. But John's baptism was simply under the old covenant. It was a preparation for the Messiah that was coming. John's whole message was about who he wasn't. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and a form of ceremonial cleansing in order that the people, Israel, who were, who were wayward at the time, would repent and be prepared for the Messiah. He just didn't have the full story. And I love, I love that Priscilla and Aquila pull them aside and say, I, I, I'm adding some things here, you know, just using my sanctified imagination. Hey, man, like you are so gifted. But the Christ has come. And it was Jesus. And then told them the story of, of the gospel, of the resurrection, and of what happened in Acts chapter 2 as far as Pentecost, and now the Spirit coming just as the Christ had promised. And, and what I also love about this is not only their willingness to correct Him, and it seems that it was a gentle correction, but also Apollos, in spite of all that he has going for him, his humility to receive the correction. And Apollos, he receives the correction. Verse 27, it says, and when, he, uh, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, so Achaia is the region of Corinth. And so Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila, remember Paul's gone at this point, but Apollos comes to see Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. They meet up. Well, they get together. They're like, hey, you're gifted, but here's the full gospel. Now, Apollos wants to go back to Achaia, which is the, reason, uh, the region excuse me, of Corinth. And verse 27 says, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, listen, friends, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so Apollos takes his new understanding with his old gift set, and is used greatly by the Lord. In fact, Apollos is brought up in Paul's letters as he wrote, writes back to the Corinthians later. First and second Corinthians are, are letters to these Christians, and um, Apollos was used so greatly in Corinth that there was a little bit of a competition going on where some of them really liked Apollos over Paul, some of them really liked Paul over Apollos, and so that's how greatly he was used. He was, in people's eyes, some people's eyes, more gifted, more useful than Paul. And so Apollos makes his way. Chapter 19, we transition now to chapter 19. Apollo makes his way to Corinth. Now, here comes Paul, verse 1 of chapter 19. And when it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Map number 4, and it's all for the maps for today. So after Paul, remember he started his third missionary journey, discipleship strategy through Galatia, and then he makes his way almost due from Antioch, that's Antioch of Pisidia. Remember there was two Antiochs, I know I'm confusing you probably. Alright, so Antioch of Pisidia in the region of Galatia makes his way due west over to the city of Ephesus. And in Ephesus, now he's there for a longer period of time, he finds some disciples and he continues preaching and teaching the gospel. Verse 2. 
And he said to them, these are what, this is what Paul said to the disciples that he found, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now, we spoke to that earlier. This is the same baptism that Apollo had experienced. It was a baptism of preparation, pointing the way to the Messiah's coming. Verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, and that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, this is the fourth occasion in our journey in Acts thus far that we've seen the Holy Spirit come like this and there be immediate fruit of speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, it happened once first, primarily at uh, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When Peter preaches the powerful, uh, powerful sermon and the Holy Spirit comes and there's tongues and people can understand and there's prophecy and it's an, a, an infilling, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so under the new covenant, now we're going to talk a little bit about baptism, not as much as some of you might like, but the point here is not the mode of baptism. The point is not John's baptism versus believer's baptism, whether it's uh, baptizing uh, an, an adult or a child who has professed faith or like our brothers and sisters who are Presbyterians that would baptize an infant. The focus here is not on the mode of baptism. The single most important baptism is what comes on every person when they trust Christ, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's most concerned with here. That's what they have not received. And so this isn't about, like, I know, hey, I know we got a lot of Southern Baptist roots in this room. Like, this isn't like, hey, this is our, this is our passage for, you know, you have to be baptized by Mar No, listen, this, it, it's not about the mode. It's about the Spirit's presence. It's about the Holy Spirit coming. And so Paul is the pioneer missionary for the church. This is still in the first century. And so the three other occasions other than Pentecost that we've seen this type of activity is to authenticate Paul's gospel. This is not a prescriptive text. We are not being instructed here as Christians to try to recreate Pentecost every single time we get together. Brothers and sisters, there's no need for that. One Pentecost happened. There's no need for us to try to recreate this and, and to highlight some of the things that we see here and that it's supposed to apply for us today because, to be frank with you, it's, it just doesn't. Now, we still have the indwelling Holy Spirit, but some of these things that the Lord did in this first century were restricted and fulfilled, and, and their purposes were fulfilled in the first century and they were restricted to the first century. Verse 8. Paul's going to continue to do Paul things. We've seen him do this in every city. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. We've seen this as well. But when some uh, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. This is sort of new. It, it started last week. Now, like, I don't know if it's Paul's age. I don't know like, what's going on with Paul. But now when they start kind of kicking against him in the synagogue, he's like, deuces, I'm out. He withdrew, the middle of verse 9, from them and took the disciples with him. Now, I love this, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. Now, Tyrannius, this was a school. For those of you covenant slash safe haven church at Big Sandy people. 
we weren't the first church to start in a school. Paul left the synagogue with these new believers and starts meeting in this school. And more than likely, the deal that he worked out with Tyrannius was, hey, when are you using this facility? And he probably said, these hours and these hours. And Paul said, hey, well, can I rent it from you or whatever they worked out to use it when you're not using it? And they said yes, and this went on for a while. So the church at Ephesus continued on, and you could say started in a school. Okay, jumping down to verse 11. Now, if, if it hasn't been weird for you yet, it's about to get weird. Just letting you know, this is one of those sections where you're like, this made the cut. And God was doing extraordinary miracles, which seems redundant, right? Extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now listen to this, friends. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. This, this section of Acts has been hijacked by, and if I offend you here, I'm, I don't think I'm sorry. All right, so look, it's been hijacked by maybe your favorite televangelist that's promising you healing, that's promising you spiritual freedom if you buy one of his $60 handkerchiefs. And, and listen, if you buy three, if you buy three, you get triple the blessing. Brothers and sisters, we laugh, but that's just gross, to be honest. The author of this is Luke, inspired by God himself. I want you to look back at verse 11 and see where the focus is. And God was doing it. Not Paul. Paul, Paul it, like scripture doesn't let us highlight Paul here. I, I do think that it's, it's interesting that it's handkerchiefs and aprons because in my mind at least, I know it can get weird, but in my mind at least, somebody would have to go, it's a handkerchief. There's got to be someone or something, what? Greater. There might have been some that worshipped handkerchiefs. But it seems less likely that using this mode, and it's extraordinary, as Scripture says, that it would highlight that this work was, in fact, the work of God Himself. Verse 19, of course, all of this stuff going on in this culture of Ephesus, which uh, there's a lot of divination, there's a lot of magic, there's a lot of spiritism. So listen to what happens. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name... By the way, I did not plan this for Halloween week, just letting you know. Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaimed. So, so let me pause here. This culture in Ephesus was wicked and dark, and there was a lot of evil, a lot of spiritism. And so they're seeing these supernatural things, and they're going, I want to do that. And so these itinerant Jewish exorcists, we later find are the seven sons of Sceva, they, they go out, they set out, to try to figure out if they can be as powerful as Paul or at least his handkerchiefs. But what they do is they don't 
understand the seriousness of the context that they're walking into. Some of you are going to want me to spend more time on the spiritual warfare darkness side of this. We did that a few weeks ago. I encourage you to go back and listen. If I say something that brings questions, please email me, talk after, whatever. We'll try to get to the bottom of it. I don't have time to unpack it all, but friends, listen to what happens here. Verse 14, seven sons of Jewish high priests named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them. And, and so listen, there's a reality, a spiritual reality that there is darkness and there is evil and it is powerful. And these seven sons of Sceva think they're going to be able to fight or attempt to fight or rebuke these spiritual forces of evil in their own power. And what they've proclaimed and what they've said is, hey, I'm here in the name of Paul's guy. There's zero personal affiliation with the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's zero acknowledgement of the power and the presence of the Spirit of God. So they're on their own. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. Paul, yeah, I recognize him. Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I don't know about you, but where, where I come from, that's a beatdown. With some humiliation added to it. But watch what happens. Because you would think... Oh no, evil's winning, evil's strong, evil's powerful. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And, and, and so listen, this is what's been contrasted in Ephesus through the gospel and through the work of God is that there are this, I'm sorry, there is this reality of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit that these demons flee. They can't take it. They can't handle it. They run. And that's been contrasted with these seven sons of Sceva and the ways of the world trying to do the same thing and leaving the house naked and wounded. And so the, Luke says, and the name of Jesus was extolled. There's conviction falling on a city. And conviction, when conviction falls, a fruit of conviction is repentance. And so in Ephesus, one of, one of the bigger buildings was a library. And I don't know how much you guys, or how much time you guys spend in libraries today, but, but we have a really hard time in our culture and context understanding the significance of a library and the work and effort that would go into a library in the first century. Books are expensive today. Books were really expensive then. And so these magicians and these people who have been deceived for years and in this 
bondage of darkness, they bring their books that was of tremendous value to them. Most scholars believe this is equivalent, are you ready for this, to three to five million dollars worth of property that they burn in the streets. Conviction, repentance. Their former way of life no longer had any value. What used to be infinitely valuable to them was now burning in the streets because what they've received through the gospel and in the person of Jesus Christ transcends any value that the world gave them. I couldn't help but think of the Lord himself's words. What what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And so how are texts like this meant to shape us? Because they are. And I think there are at least five ways, quickly, that we see it. The first way is this. We should long to grow together in the gospel. Now, I'm thinking about Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila here. That, that's where this application is being pulled from. Like We are meant to grow together in the gospel. Yes, we are meant to grow as individuals in the gospel, but brothers and sisters, the emphasis of the New Testament, the primary emphasis of the New Testament is that you and I together are meant to grow up together in the gospel. I read a quote from J.I. Packer, uh, Packer this week. He says, you should never move on from the gospel. You should always move on in the gospel. You see, the temptation, the more that we learn, especially in some of these more educated contexts, is that there's this temptation to kind of have the gospel and be safe with the gospel, but it's sitting over here. But then you move on from the gospel to think about other worldviews and other ways to think and what people are doing in other places. And like, this is, is sweet and it's nice and it makes me feel comfortable, but it's not necessarily something to be broadcasted or applied to every person in the world or in my city or even in my home. And we move on from the gospel. But we're meant to move on together in the gospel. What is true, what is true of all of us, is that we all have room to grow in the gospel. Now, I'm not trying to cause doubt in your mind or in my mind about what you believe about Jesus Christ. But if anybody tells you, or brother or sister, if you think this today, that you've learned it all, you know it all and you understand it all, you're probably still in the Jesus Storybook Bible. <laughs> because if we're committed together to this book, in, in this Bible, there are going to be things and thoughts and ideas and doctrines that take our minds to a place that it just can't go. There are going to be things that we see clearly and plainly in this book that cause tremendous tension in our hearts. And we need each other to walk through that. God has gifted you and God has gifted me. God has gifted us together so that we help one another grow in the gospel and be sure that one of us doesn't move on from the gospel. And Priscilla and Aquila loved Apollos enough to say, let's go to Starbucks. Let's get a coffee. I want to talk to you about a few things. 
How does this happen? Quickly, first. Because look, like, like this idea of growing together in the gospel, the Bible doesn't let us leave here feeling like this, this is, oh my goodness, what a burden. I'm going to have to figure this out. All right, let's go, you guys. Let's pull up our boots. Let's buckle our belts tight. Now let's get after it. But listen, how does this happen? The first thing that you see in Scripture about how we grow together in the gospel is this. God causes it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but then what happened? God gave the growth. You guys have heard me say this for years that have been around. All of us should really pay attention to farmers. Because farmers, they can till the ground, they can scatter the seed, they can cover the seed, they can fertilize, they can pull weeds, but there comes to a point in every farmer's life where he or she has to sit in that rocking chair and what? Hope God brings growth. And that is the exact analogy that Paul's giving here. Hey, I planted, Apollos watered, but any growth that comes is from God. So he goes on to say, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so how does this growth happen? First thing to acknowledge is that God himself causes it. Second is this. Um, growth doesn't come by seeking growth. It may be confusing, but growth comes by seeking Christ. I, I think in our culture of Christianity, there are books, there are conferences, there are podcasts, and I've listened to them, and I've read them, and I've benefited from them, but they can make us really almost infatuated with the process of growth and how to grow, and we focus on growing, 12 steps to be the best Christian, 12 steps to the new you, and all of those things, when scripturally, the way that we grow up as individuals in Christ and the way that we grow up together in Christ is by desiring Christ. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. God causes it. And it comes by desiring and seeking, and as Peter says, longing for pure spiritual milk, that we may grow up into salvation and that growth happens because we taste that the Lord is good. And what do you do when you eat something you like? This isn't confession time. Calm down. You get more. That's what it looks like. Next. We grow together in the gospel through the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. One of them is this. You can't grow together if you're not together. Prayer. Reading scripture, singing. So through ordinary means of grace, we hold fast to Jesus. Listen to what the apostle says to the church at Colossae. Holding fast to the head. The head is Christ and we are the body. Listen to what he says. From whom the whole body. All right, so the whole body. How is the whole body nourished? How is the whole body knit together? Let me read it again. Holding fast to the head. From whom? That's Christ. The whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. Grows with a growth that is from who? God. Another word for growth, this is a Bible word, it's sanctification. Growth and sanctification are guaranteed. Again, in case this feels like burden, you know, it feels like, okay, what do I got to go do now? Well, listen, like that's not the emphasis. There are things to do, but it's not the emphasis. In Romans 8, Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed or to grow or to be sanctified to the image of his Son. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. It's, and this is crystal clear. Now may the God of peace, get your amens ready. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Listen to this. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be what? What does that say? Kept. Kept by who? Kept by you? Kept by your spouse? Kept by your parents? Heavens no. Kept by the Lord. He himself, the God of peace, will sanctify you completely. He himself will keep us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 24, underline it, highlight it, post it. I'm not big on tattoos, but let's 24. He who calls you is faithful. That's the amen part. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will. And so we long, and we seek, and we ask, and we plead with God to do in us as individuals and in us together what only He can do, because He surely will. The next application drawn from this is is don't fear the devil. Resist him. Do you fear the devil? Do you fear darkness? Scripturally, there's really no sense in that. Because it's clear, in one place it's clear, is James 4, where he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist him. Don't, don't submit to him. Don't live in fear of him. When there's obvious evil in and around you, or your children, or your spouse, or whoever, or whatever the context is, Speak boldly the name of Jesus Christ. Read loudly and with courage the words of God Himself. And He will flee. He can't stand it. Go in your own power, you leave naked and wounded. Just like the seven sons of Sceva. Third, conviction is an expression of God's love for us. Friends, in the middle of... Chapter 19 in this section. There's obviously something going down spiritually. Because people are burning stuff in the streets. Like worldviews are being changed. Hearts are being changed. People are believing the gospel. And part of the way that that comes about. One of the steps of that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And conviction is something that if I'm, and I want to be honest with you here, but not scare you off or cause you to fire me. I don't need a sabbatical, none of that. But listen, here's usually how it works with me. Conviction is resisted and evil is welcomed. Instead of resisting evil and welcoming conviction, I resist conviction and welcome evil when I don't understand. In that moment, I'm not understanding that conviction is an expression of God's love for me. Conviction is good for us. Conviction protects us. Conviction is the way that God brings us in. Don't ignore it. Friends, listen, listen. You don't have to go on a scavenger hunt to find your sin. You know. If if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you know, so stop playing. You know. You know what your sins are because he's faithful to convict us of our sins. 
Which leads to this next application, because when there's conviction and it's seen as an expression of God's love, then we receive another expression or a gift from God, and that's repentance itself. Conviction brings repentance, and repentance is a turning from what's old to Jesus. It's not turning from what's old to something new that's less than Jesus. It's a turning from what's old to Jesus Christ himself, who says, come to me, sinners. I welcome sinners. And so conviction brings repentance. And, and these people burning stuff in the streets, like I know some of you probably have horror stories of youth camp, of the guy preaching and being like, burn your CDs. And you burned your CDs and you're like, the smoke was green. I saw the demons going up. I'm like, nah. It's probably because the cases were plastic, but that's fine. Believe it, whatever you, whatever you want to believe. Maybe you saw the, something. I don't know. Like, I'm not... But, but seriously, listen to me. Listen, listen, please, listen. What do you need to burn? And there's conviction. And we welcome it. We see attitudes and behaviors and sins that, that we feel like are secret and just limited to us, but that's not the way sin works. Sin, sin wants to destroy, not just you, but the people that are closest to you. And it will. And God in his kindness has said, hey, no, 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 that's, that's not my way. And our response is, Lord, I, I see that. Help me turn to you. And, and he gives us this gift of repentance and says, turn from that and come and come to me. And what we saw in Acts chapter 19 is, is that everything that was valuable to these people prior to Christ is now as it's in the burn barrel. This was Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but whatever gain, he's speaking of his former life. He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss. I have repented of all things and count them as... This is a really strong Greek word, and it would offend you if I used the English word for it. As rubbish. It does have an emoji. In order that I may gain Christ. When conviction comes and it's not ignored, there's repentance and we see Christ to be as valuable as He is. And everything else is just less. It's less. Some of us, us, me, we have things that we need to burn. And some of us up to this point, we've presumed on the kindness of God. We shouldn't do that from this point forward. But we're not going to end there. We're going to end where this section ends with verse 20. Because when there is a move of God and there are people growing together in the gospel, 
And the devil is being resisted and he's fleeing. There's conviction. There's repentance. This is revival. This is awakening. When that happens, look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And praise be to God, this is not limited to the first century. You and I are here today because this is true. Because the word of God increased. The word of God prevailed, and it made its way to us. And God's plan is to use us so that this word continues to increase, continues to prevail mightily, so that more are saved. And so we have the privilege to continue to live in the same power, with the same effectiveness, with the same gospel that we read about in Acts chapter 19. And everything we've read in Acts chapter 1 all the way through 19, and everything we're going to read beyond this, there's one explanation for it all. And it's the power of the Lord working through the proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.